My guest is Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman. Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. His most recent book is Command, the Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. And he also has a must-read, essential reading substack to which you should all subscribe. Welcome to the podcast, Lawrence. Well, welcome to you. I'm happy to be here. We're going to try and only talk about Ukraine and Russia in the next yeah. 25 minutes or so without getting distracted. So let's see how far we get. And first things first, I don't want to dwell too much on the past, but to the extent that it might inform a bit the future, what is your take on why so many personalities in the political, diplomatic, military, think tanky uh, establishment did not see the invasion by Russia of Ukraine coming two years ago? Yeah, in which I'd include myself, because it was a stupid thing to do, I think is the main reason. I mean, I, 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 mean, I can only talk about my own many conversations from sort of late 2021 into 2022. And you couldn't discount the possibility, I mean, people shouldn't discount the possibility of, the, of an invasion then because there were so many Russian troops gathering around the border and clearly preparing uh, for something. The difficulty was first, it's very hard to find Russians who actually thought there was gonna be an invasion. Secondly, it was, it, it was hard to see what what was going to be gained by it? I mean, you could sort of understand a limited operation in the Donbass, um, but trying to occupy a whole country that was going to be hostile seemed a pretty stupid idea, as it proved. But I, I mean, I think people like me were sort of becoming more reconciled to the possibility by the time it happened because uh, just of, because of Russian behaviour. So. It wasn't so much that, the, the, I mean, some people just couldn't believe it, e even as it was happening. But I think there was a sort of consensus that something serious was on a few days before. And you come back to the point that military operations are supposed to have a, a purpose. And, and it was never quite clear what Putin was trying to achieve and i think one of the difficulties we had is you know we read the essay he wrote in the summer of 2021 which this famous essay which um, basically denies the case for a separate existence of ukraine is full of very tendentious history and you had to assume that this is what he believed but he said similar things like that before it wasn't this wasn't news in terms of Putin's own views, he'd said similar things in 2014. And he'd held back then. He'd, he'd been quite cautious. I mean, quite astute, right. really, in his use of military power. So, you know, you're trying to read one person's mind. Uh, and when it's Putin, it's you know, quite difficult to get it right. Right. Well, it's almost two years on now from that evasion. Mm -hmm. So where do we stand now? How would you characterize this, the current situation? Difficult. I think we've reached a point where it's hard for either side to win a military victory. I don't, I think words like stalemate can be apocryphatic to not a, not a great use of the chess metaphor is, is a bad, bad analogy because, because that suggests there's no movement whatsoever. And there is movement, there are things going on. There's quite a lot going on. Uh, at the moment, there's a massive Russian offensive going on. It's been going on since early October. It just hasn't got very far. So I think there's a, a sense that the defense has shown itself to be stronger for both sides, that it's quite hard to make major military gains. Now, 
I think Ukraine can keep going. It's going to have a difficult few months because of ammunition and um, air defense shortages over, over the next few months. It does require Congress to sort itself out and the EU to sort itself out. Um, I think on balance both will, but it's not a done deal yet. So I think Congress is probably more difficult than the EU, uh, but it really needs the Americans. So if, if the Americans can't sort themselves out, then from the middle of the year, Ukraine will be in serious trouble. I, you know, I think there's no point in beating about the bush on that. If the Americans can sort themselves out, Ukraine can keep going. And I think people, you know, recognize the disappointment that's felt about the Ukrainian offensive. But it was only a very brief period when people were really optimistic about where that would go. I think from late summer, it was obvious that it, that it was not going to make major breakthroughs and become more attritional. But they don't pay a lot of attention to the, to the Russian offensives, which have been pretty catastrophic as well. Russia has poured effort and people uh, into, into trying to take more territory in the Donbass and taken a bit, but nothing like as much as it needs. And there's an impatience, I think, on Putin's part at the moment. I think the, you know, the problems with the Ukrainian aid in Congress gave him some, some hope and he was quite bouncy before Christmas on that. But the fact is he, he's pushing very hard for a quick victory and he hasn't got it yet. So a lot of people assume he can just keep this going, which probably possibly can, and maybe wait for Trump or whatever. I don't think he's content with that. I don't think he's very happy with that. So I think the next date, I mean, assume, again, assuming that, that Congress can uh, agree the package, then the next date we're looking at is mid-March, 17th of March, for the Russian presidential election, which is not important in itself, but is important because it sort of will mark a, a moment for Putin. And if he's going to do a stop take and see exactly where this is going, then that's probably when it will happen. You use the word attritional, but also Putin being impatient. Those terms seem to be slightly in contradiction with each other. I mean, obviously, we all know by now, with the benefit of hindsight, that almost two years ago, Putin expected a quick win, and that obviously didn't uh, materialize. And therefore, there's a conventional view now developing that he's now reconciled or changed strategy to a, a one of a war of attrition. But that kind of comes against the, the, the brick wall of his, his impatience you're talking about. He wants, to, he wants to get on and win this war. Well, all wars are attritional. Uh, I mean, it, it's not a special type of war. It just means that you're not very optimistic about the, about great manoeuvres or overwhelming defences. And I think he believes that Russian forces can still be sufficiently strong to overwhelm Ukrainian defences. I don't think he's given up on that, despite the fact that the Russian military performance for the last two years has been pretty abysmal. So, uh, I mean, you know, they can adapt. Their, their defensive work has been effective one should never dismiss them but, but they're not able uh, they haven't as yet been able to to have sort of breakthrough offensives and i think putin does find that frustrating so he's prepared to sacrifice a lot of lives in order to see if progress can be made and well we know we're watching avdivka and places like that to see to see what happens but so far they've you know, made kilometers of, of progress not very much and probably not in a state that even if they uh, did make some sort of gain, that they could follow it through. I mean, it's just they've used up so much of their stuff. So the attrition is 
it's hurting both, but it's certainly hurting the Russians. You talked about the, the air defence and ammunition shortages. I want to ask you in a moment about the West, especially Europe's capacity to actually to provide munitions, to use a very slightly old-fashioned word. But before we do that, um, there's a lot of talk, as you know, at the moment about fatigue in the West, uh, about the war. Uh, it's been dragging on for too long. People have other things to worry about, not to mention Israel-Gaza. Uh, there's the issue of funding, of course, both at the EU level and, and the United States. Um, how much of a problem do you think that is, or will there still be sufficient realpolitik, as it were, uh, coming into the discussion on both sides of the Atlantic and the West to make sure that that fatigue is, is, does not become the dominant narrative? I don't think fatigue actually describes what's going on. I think those who are always convinced that Russia uh, it's necessary to stand up to Russia and support Ukraine is still convinced. I mean, you know, this Ukrainians who are dying in this cause, it's not Western forces. The amounts of money involved are significant, but they're not impossible for an alliance the size of, uh, of NATO. And by and large, that's what most political leaders uh, on both sides of the Atlantic are saying it's not so much fatigue it's particular countries and individuals it's hungry right. it's some of the republican congressmen uh, and women that's the problem so it's, it, it fatigue suggests people who, who were you know all very positive uh, have now become rather negative i don't think there's evidence of that it's people who are always a bit negative right are pushing harder but it's a I, I, you know the important thing to look at is, is the actual political configurations in the key countries, rather than just sort of a general mood. Um, I think, you know, I think the narratives are important and we are capable, as I think was tending to happen towards the end of last year, of talking ourselves into in, into more gloom than is necessary. Mm. So, um, uh, but it was disappointment rather than uh, disaffection, if you like. Uh, you know, people had hoped that Ukraine would be in a better position after their own offensives, and then, in fact, they were. And you have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge that this is a difficult and long-term commitment. But it's not an impossible commitment for Europeans to make. It's not. Now, on the munition side, it is the problem is capacity. It's, again, it's not that people don't see the need or accept the need. They're just... Uh, incredibly difficult to get this stuff going, to, to get industry to move. So um, the Americans are, are moving on, the Europeans have been pretty slow, uh, but it's happening, it's just slow. Well, you've written elsewhere about the need to, uh, more pressing need for people to accept that we need to have a quote-unquote war economy. Do you think that uh, political elites have now recognised that we are on a kind of war economy footing or that one needs to be uh, created pretty, pretty fast? Yeah, I mean, we're not on a war economy footing like Russia is, where, where you know, a third of expenditure is going to be on military stuff. And, um, uh, so we're, we're never going to be at that level. It's accepting that you can't just assume you're going to have lots of notice for problems in the future and that you can keep going with small reserves. And, that you know, when current stocks run out, that's it. We, we, we have to prepare for the long term. I think it's more preparing for the long term and sustaining a commitment rather than making it a much greater commitment than it is at the moment. I mean, and our economies can cope. We've coped with quite a lot already, you know, in addition to COVID. There was the energy shock of 2022, which Putin thought was going to knock um, Europe out of the game. It didn't. 
So, you know, we can cope and we shouldn't talk ourselves down on this, but, but it, it does require serious investment. And I think some of that is, is not coming as quickly as one would like. And it does require some risk taking. This particularly, you know, matter for the Americans because they've got stuff that if they handed over to Ukraine, uh, wouldn't necessarily be game changers, but would make a difference. And, and Germany too is, is, is being quite cautious at the moment. So I think we need a greater appetite for risk and we need a, um, a greater investment. This might not be your, your precise specialist area, um, Lawrence, but do you think there's more now a pressing uh, need and a greater awareness, recognition that the European Union has to collaborate more, cooperate more, rather than as well, maybe not instead of, but as well as the, any national efforts to, on the sheer capacity issue of, of, of sharing the ability to provide the, the, this equipment and these munitions? It's an interesting one. I mean, the European Union um, did well, I think, in 2022. It responded well. The sanctions measures were, were stronger than one might have expected. And there has been a move to strengthen European cooperation on all aspects of the conflict. But you've got a problem which is uh, Hungary, Orban, mainly. And, and in areas where you need unanimity, that, that creates difficulties. And we'll see how well the EU can work around. It doesn't need the EU for European countries to step up production. If, if that can be done more efficiently because it's got uh, EU push behind it, then great. If you, and you can sort out um, which national industry benefits more than uh, than others and so on. That That's great. If it is done simply to show that this has got a, a European stamp on it, um, even though that may take longer, uh, less impressive. So I think, I think it, it's up to the EU to show us. It has shown in other areas uh, on sanctions in getting very clear political statements out of the Union on moving forward on eventual Ukrainian accession. Uh, I think it's very important that, that as they move into new areas for the union, they don't, they don't make these uh, sort of performative um, right. to make a point about the union, but actually make sure that, that this is just a, a more effective and efficient way of getting things done. What is your understanding or appreciation of the extent to which this conflict has brought the UK and, and the EU closer together. They are, that they are uh, certainly conferring and maybe exchanging best practice or, I don't know, synchronizing activity. What is your take on all that? Well, it's made the security dimension of Europe much more important. And you can't really do much on the security dimension in Europe without the UK. Um, it's still almost significant armed forces on the continent, natural working relationship with France, pretty fraught with Germany, but because of the uh, of the limits of the German capabilities, very good now with, with the Northern European countries. So it, it's, it's happening unavoidably, I think, because this is an intense security time and it doesn't need the EU to happen. Uh, it, it does bring the UK closer to European countries. And I think, you know, a lot of the tension has gone out of that relationship, not all of it by any means, but a lot of it has gone out of that relationship after Britain's sort of weird political year, um, <laughs> where right. kept on going through prime ministers and so on. And these sort of things have settled down. The, the opposition 
will be uh, carry on with the same policies. There's no evidence that they're going to do anything different on on Ukraine or defense security generally, but they will probably get try to get closer to uh, other European countries. So I think that, you know, after a, my mind in a rather unnecessary disruption, it, it, things that are, are moving back closer again, although they'll never be as close as they would have been had we stayed in the EU. Right. There's a lot of speculation, as you know, about in the event of a Trump victory uh, in November this year, that the, the, the war, would, in his mind, would finish almost instantly. Um, more seriously, that he would just with US withdraw support for Ukraine. Do you think that is a distinct possibility that in the event of a Trump victory, US support just almost disappears almost immediately? I think that would be the fear. I'm not sure. I mean, anybody who tries to predict what Trump will do uh, is likely to find themselves embarrassed. I mean, Putin was asked about, you know, are you waiting for Trump? And he said, well, you know, when Trump was in power last time, he increased sanctions on Russia. So on balance, you have to assume he'd, he, he'd be less supportive of Ukraine. But, you know, when he thinks he's got a deal in 24 hours, um, it's not clear this is something that Putin is going to embrace. And Putin may well think, you know, this is the moment where I, I play hardball. And so you don't know what Trump would do then. He's perfectly capable of increasing US aid uh, because that's the way he operates. I mean, I think there, you know, I think there are many Europeans, including me, with real concerns about what it means for US democracy, for the mm. cohesion of the alliance. There's all sorts of big issues raised by the possibility of Trump returning to power. And it's something Europeans really have to start getting their heads around. I mean, not to act as if it's inevitable, but at least they've got to start thinking about, you know, what this means. And, and you know, the best implication of what we know at the moment is Europeans will have to do more for Europe, which they're capable of doing. So again, no reason why not, especially now that Russia is much diminished as a result of what's happened over the last two years. But they've got, but they'll have to uh, have some serious thought about it. And uh, again, this is an area where, you know, obviously the British election will be very close to the American election, but certainly an area where one would hope that the British would be pretty active. Well, that a brief segue then into uh, U.S. support for NATO in the event of a Trump victory. Obviously, NATO NATO now has found its its moment in the sun, as it were, for all these negative reasons. <laughs> uh, uh, to what extent? What is your view that that NATO is actually stepping up to the plate uh, and acting in a way which is appropriate, or is it still uh, has lessons to learn? Is it still trying to second guess the implications of a possible uh, Trump victory in November? NATO is an institution. Um, would have to cope with whoever's president of the United States. That's the way it works. Um, and Congress, I think, has already made it clear that, that they won't look very kindly on any attempt to abandon NATO. Um, and the alliance is not a not a bad shape. It, it uh, if you look at how it responded to to the crisis, it um, it sent forces to vulnerable countries, to to the Baltic states and others. It's uh, sort of reinforced there. Uh, it's expanded uh, Finland, hopefully Sweden soon, which wasn't on the cards beforehand. And by and large, it's, it's, um, it's spoken with one voice. It hasn't had major disruptive arguments, as sort we saw before the Iraq war in 2003, for example. 
So it's, it's not in bad shape, but it needs American leadership. Right. Uh, however you play it, it needs American leadership. And if the American leadership isn't there, then it'll be in trouble. So, you know, having survived one Trump term, it's possible to survive another, but it won't be easy. And you know, you've got a further problem, I think, which we saw with Trump in his first term. It's just simple capacity and competence. Yeah. You know, Focus. You, 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 need, you need the people there. Even if he's got crazy policies, you need the people there to implement them. And I think the Trump team has thought, has thought more about that than they, they had done in 2016. But, you know, anybody, anybody with any great credibility is going to look at what happened to everybody appointed by Trump uh, when he started his last term uh, and wonder where, you know, whether, whether life's too short and I need it. So uh, even, even the way Trump always turns on, on people as soon as he's dissatisfied with them. So there's a competence question, which is not trivial. That, that right. could come up. A final question, now back to the war, and uh, a crystal ball type question, which I'm sure you hate, but you've written quite recently, uh, quote, there are a number of features of this war that make it less than suitable for a major negotiating effort, unquote. Uh, what do you mean by that, please? And does that mean you're pessimistic that uh, this war is going to end anytime soon? I'm pretty pessimistic. I mean, I, I think it's, again, you know, you, you're trying to read Putin's mind. I mean, the Ukrainians are are not going to offer a ceasefire, which involves a great chunk of their territory being handed over to Russia. So, or, or de facto handed over. So they'll, they'll, they'll carry on. If Russia offered something, they would be put under a lot of pressure to respond, only realistic. But Russia hasn't offered anything. And that, I think, goes back to the problem that Putin has, is that a ceasefire at the moment would leave him with a, a pretty significant, but pretty incoherent part of, of Ukraine that, that's battered and ruined and depopulated as a result of what he's done. And taking it over would be taking over what would still be, in many respects, a hostile population, but certainly a hostile neighbour that, that would thereafter build up and, and cause continual defence issues for, for Russia. So Putin's got a problem about how he ends this in a way that is sustainable for him. Right. Uh, it's, it, again, it's his own fault, but this is, this is where we are. And I think also his problem is as soon as he does end the war, there's a reckoning. You know, what was this all about? Why, why, why have we lost a few hundred thousand people for, for, for this? So I think Putin is torn. I think one part of him wants to get this over with. It's embarrassing that this is still going on. But another part of him is nervous about any conclusion which can't be presented as a clear victory. And there is a view that Putin can present what he likes as a clear victory because he's in that sort of position. But I don't think it's quite as easy as that for him. So we're watching Putin. That's why I, I mentioned 17th of March. Uh, you know, I think he'd love to be handed a military victory before the presidential election in Russia. Um, if there isn't one by the time of the presidential election, I think this sense of futility and cost and difficulty is going to lead people around him in the elite to at least, you know, pose questions about, well, you know, how do you imagine this ending? Or is this really going to go on for another two or three years? So... Uh, we'll see. Uh, but it depends on Putin.
All right. Well, I may ask you to come back in a few months' time to carry on this fascinating conversation, but we have to leave it there. Lawrence Friedman, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Good to talk to you.